This is episode nine, and today I'm speaking with the microbiologist, Mary Claire Arrieta, author of the book, Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. Epidemic diseases of, of nowadays, including obesity, including autism, including HDHD, there's now pretty strong evidence showing that there are um, linkages between changes in the microbiome early on and then the risk of some of these diseases. Hey mom, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hi guys, thank you for listening to another episode of the Citrus Love Podcast, Keeping Motherhood Inspired. I hope you enjoy what you've heard so far. If you have been listening, please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, wherever you're listening. This will help more people see the podcast, get it ranked higher so we can help support more mothers because, hey, if you're a mom or you know mom, you know that extra help and support and real talk, honest conversations we're having on this podcast will help someone. I know it's helped me. So um, I'm hoping it will do the same for you. So before we dive deep into today's topic, let me give you an overview of who is Mary Claire Arietta. She is a microbiologist and the co-author of the book, Let Them Eat Dirt, published in 2016. It has been a bestseller in both Canada and USA, translated in 14 languages. It has even been made into a documentary film that was released in the U.S. called Let Them Eat Dirt, The Hunt for Our Kids Missing Micro. She has a PhD in medicine and has been studying intestinal microbiology and immunology for over 15 years. In 2015, her study has been connecting asthma and very young babies missing key intestinal bacterial species, which was considered a breakthrough in her field. So she knows her stuff. She currently works at the Arietta Lab in Calgary, Alberta, and she's interested in understanding how humans begin their life in the company of trillions of microbes in our bodies and how microbes helps define important aspects of immune and metabolic development. And she is an assistant professor in the departments of physiology and pharmacology and pediatrics at the University of Calgary. And if this isn't enough, she has been published in many leading scientific journals. This last November 2019, she was named top 40 under 40 in Calgary. On top of that, she's a mother of two children, a seven-year-old son, eight-year-old daughter. Whew, okay, so we're done. <laughs> 
Some of us are very paranoid about microbes, bacteria, germs, as we usually like to call them. So to get to the truth of it all with a professional, someone that knows her thing about microbes, bacteria, illnesses, everything all in between. So we talk about the most important topics, current issues related to germs. Listen up. This is not a scary episode. It's actually a very interesting. Some things you'll learn you never knew, you thought you knew, but that are actually wrong and how we should actually be doing it today. Share it with your friends. If you have a child, it's a must. So listen up. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Marie Claire, for being on the Citrus Love podcast today. I've been waiting for this conversation uh, <laughs> for a while, ever since you accepted to come on the podcast, because I hear parents, especially since I had, I have two kids, I've been hearing parents talking about germs and bacteria and sickness. So today I am hoping to clear some of those questions. We're often very paranoid as parents about the cleanliness around us and the amount of exposure uh, maybe our sick kids are to other kids. We like to call all those kids play area germ pool because there's so many kids around. So reading your, your book that you co-authored with B. Brett Finley, Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World, which basically says how we parents are making our kids sick by being too clean, too sanitized. So it seems a little contradictory as thinking about it because parents were always trying to keep our kids safe. So before we talk about a lot of things. I just want you to clarify some terms like what are microbes and bacteria? Is it the same thing? And what's the connection between bacteria and cleanliness? Like why are kids considered microbe magnets? And then we'll dive into some specifics. Um, well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to to being in, in this podcast. I love the opportunity of, of, of being in, in this type of media. Microbes and, and bacteria are, are similar, but not exactly the same. So I think I will begin by defining microbes. Microbes are all the living forms that we cannot see with our naked eye, hence the micro in that word. And, mm -hmm. and microbes include bacteria, of course, but it also includes viruses. It includes fungi. It includes other living creatures known as as protists and etc. What what I mean with this is that. Um, All bacteria are microbes, but not all microbes are, are bacteria. Microbes is a much bigger, much bigger term that encompasses many other microbial life forms. So we, we can start there. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it comes to why are our microbes can consider or why are children consider microbe uh, It's a bit of a multi-layer question. So now that, that we've understood what uh, microbes are, so children, um, because of the way they behave when they're really little, and, and you still have a couple of little ones with you, um, they have this tendency, this just behavioral tendency to try and get into dirty, stu dirty stuff and to taste their, their world, mm -hmm. smell it mm -hmm. and sense it. And I think that's just part of a, a behavioral uh, development. Um, and part because of that, and because the fact that adults usually stop doing that at a certain age, mm -hmm. and then there's some changes in how much 
children can be exposed to microbes, how much adults can be exposed to microbes. Certainly adults, we have been taught that we should avoid uh, being next to someone that is really sick, but a child is not going to think twice to play and share their toys and food with someone with another child that's looking really snotty, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's differences in behavior um, that account for, for some of the micro-magnet uh, situation. But there's also differences in, in the fact that children are developing many aspects of their, their bodies, including their immune system. Um, the immune system is this very large groups of, of, of cells in the body that really defend us from infections and, and from other things. They're kind of like the, the internal army that, that everyone has. And mm-hmm. children are, are very much developing that, and it takes a few years for that to happen. And during that period of time, children are also, because they're exposed to other children, a lot more exposed to infections, whether it's, you know, colds and, and, and many of the diseases that uh, are now preventable with vaccines are very much childhood diseases because of those behavior issues that I, that I was talking about. And also because their immune systems are not fully trained. Kids are a lot more exposed to potential infections and their army, their immune army, is not full and ready to completely fight them off in the same way that adults can or a healthy adult can. Mm-hmm. In the book, it said that the microbiota takes three to five years from birth to become fully established community. And during that time, it's very unstable. Any drastic changes can alter it permanently. What can be some of those drastic changes during the first five years of a child's life? Yeah, and the majority of these changes in the, in the microbiota, and just to give the listeners, uh, first of all, a, a small definition, the microbiota is this big community of microbes that live in and on any individual, in this case, human. Mm-hmm. So this community, as, as you just said, changes um, over the course of the first few years, up to five years, but the majority of those changes happens in the first two years, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is when, uh, when we have, um, in studies, observed that changes to this microbiome, and actually especially in the first year, can change um, in a more permanent way. And these can be mainly in the form of strong changes, uh, like an antibiotic, or a series of of long-lasting treatments with with antibiotics. So that would be an example. So since you're talking about antibiotics, let's talk about that. In the book, he said not only it kills the bad bacteria, but also the good ones in our bodies, which helps develop the child's immune system. When should parents give antibiotics and when should they not give them antibiotics? Because I think that's a question, even for my own parents, they've brought us up with antibiotic. You have a a cold, you have a fever, just take antibiotics, you'll heal faster. Is this this right? (laughs) No. And in general, so a few things about that, what I think is a very important question. So of course, things have changed ever since, you know, your parents or or my parents were dealing with antibiotics, because Mm -hmm. before one could actually get antibiotics over the counter. So that's not the case anymore. And because of that, a very important detail is up to parents, but not as much as to, it's it's up to doctors and healthcare practitioners to make that decision. We're not going to just decide without a healthcare practitioner to give or not an antibiotic. Normally, 
these medical decisions or these medical protocols are followed in a way that a doctor says that, okay, the, the benefit of taking an antibiotic outweigh any risk of taking an antibiotic. So you should say, okay, if, if a doctor prescribes an antibiotic, I, I should definitely take it. And that's very much still the case, especially with children and especially with small children, those that are in the infant stage zero to one. Because if a doctor really suspects that there may be a dangerous infection going on, even with the bad side effects that an antibiotic can have in, in the microbiota, the benefits of, of the antibiotic will outweigh the risk of what can happen. So infections, because as I just said before, children do not have such a strong immune system. Infections can spread very rapidly, whether it's bacteria or viruses. A child can go from like barely having a small fever to, to that, that, for example, in a meningitis case, to, to become severely ill and in mm. intensive care within 24 hours. In adults, that can happen, but normally not so. So one has to err on the side of caution, especially with children, and then one has to follow what a doctor tells us to do in terms of, of antibiotic use. At, at the same time, some of the comments that, that we make in the book about the antibiotic use is that it's being overused and it is being overused by medical practitioners. So what we are um, trying to, to focus our efforts and not just as the authors of the books, but many other um, health specialists and, and scientists is to change some of the medical guidelines that will help a doctor decide whether an antibiotic is recommended or not. And and those have been changing. And in fact, in Canada, but also in other places in the world, in the world, there's been initiatives known as antibiotic stewardship initiatives to try and limit how much antibiotics are used. And however, in some cases, there's just so much that uh, it can be restricted and antibiotics will always have a place in, in hospitals and in, in, in doctors' offices. And, and we will, it's very common that we will have to, at some point, give an antibiotic. What we're trying to reduce is how much these are given and how, how easy these are given. There's still parts of the world where antibiotics can be bought over the counter. Uh, China and India are, are two very large examples, right? So, so in many places, there's still a lot that can be done at a societal level to try and limit antibiotic use so that it's not like when your parents and, and my parents were raising children. Mm -hmm. I remember like a few months ago, my, my daughter was sick and I think it was just something sinus. I went to the doctor's office. She didn't prescribe me anything. And I'm like, can't you just prescribe me something for yeah. her? Like she's in pain. And she said, no, this is normal. It's going to heal on its own. And I was surprised because I thought she was a pediatrician, but I thought that they usually push medication, but I'm seeing what you're saying. Which is, which is a good thing. I, I work with um, many researchers that also are pediatricians and, and they say that yeah I mean from from the the Canadian Society of Pediatricians there are now a strong recommendations um, to try and, and, and limit antibiotic use unless of course they consider it necessary and I think that's good even though I have been on that end I have been on you know that the patient seat with one of my children when they were babies and it's really hard to know that there's really nothing that you can do but to let the disease take its course. Mm -hmm. In the book, it says also that what you eat is not only feeding you, but it's feeding your microbe. What are some things that are really bad um, for a microbe? 
Yes. Um, well, I would probably start with what are what is really good with with micros. That may be a bit easier for okay. me to frame around, if that's okay. okay. So, yeah. and I'll start by 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 saying that the microbes they live at really high numbers in our guts. None of us are sterile. All of our guts are full of and trillions of of microbes. It's very much a large number, and they're there not for any altruistic reasons. Um, They're there because they get fed. This is the main reason why many organisms choose to live in one place or another. And the gut is a very convenient place to be because we're feeding it all the time and we're watering it all the time. But the way this relationship that, that we have with microbes work is that we allow microbes to live there because they help us digest certain foods, in particular fiber. So fiber, It's a component of foods that comes from plants. So this is plant-derived food, right? This is fiber. Mm -hmm. We don't get fiber from from any animals. And we do not have the right enzymes or the right substances to digest fiber. We just simply don't have them. And we rely on microbes for that. So they're there in this very neat symbiosis where, you know, we we charge them rent by them helping us digest this, this fiber. And that has worked really well, except that humans in the past century, and especially in, in westernized countries, have really changed the amount and the variety of fiber sources that, that we used. And, and this is actually quite tremendous in terms of, of how much it has changed. Humans, most parts of the world uh, back then didn't really used to eat that much meat, but their diets relied more on plant mm-hmm. sources. And because of that, the amount of fiber was much higher. Now, with this depletion of fiber, what has happened is that we have killed off a lot of the microbes that used to live in our great grandfather's um, guts because simply the dietary changes have been that big. And what's important, and and this has to do with what we wrote in, in the book that you just talked about, is that the type of microbiome that we end up with during our lifetime really gets set up during infancy. So this is the first couple of years of life. If we do not expose this microbiota to the right amount and the right um, variety of fibers, we're not really going to foster a lot of diversity or a lot of different microbes in, in that baby's belly. And this is what we think that, yes, of course, reducing antibiotics is very important, but but to us, diet is the single most important thing that we as parents can change in order to promote a healthy microbiota. And fiber is one of the, the best recommendations. Um, in addition to increasing fiber, reducing the amount of um, unhealthy fats is another recommendation in terms of the, the microbiome. But as you can see, what I'm telling you, you know, high fiber, different types of fibers, um, higher proportion of plant-derived mm-hmm. food, and less fats and healthy fats. These are the same recommendations that dietitians and nutritionists mm-hmm. have been giving us for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. So we know this is what we need to eat. Now we understand that it's not just because of our own bodies, but also because of this microbiota. The problem is that despite these recommendations, it's really hard to change these practices. So changing behavior in a society is is actually quite hard. So you may actually tell people, 
you should be eating more fiber. You should be eating a little bit less meat and, and you should be eating less, less unhealthy fats. But we know from studies that not a lot of people do it. Now, we do hold that uh, because we're a bit more careful with our children than we are with ourselves. Mm -hmm. That by providing these recommendations to parents in relationship to their children's health, we may be able to change some of these behaviors and we may be able to foster better diets in, in children. How long does it take to change the microbes in your gut? Let's say you decide to become healthier and you change your diet. How long does that take? So it really depends on how big that change is. Um, if you're only increasing your fiber a bit, that, that will definitely have some change. But the studies that have looked at this, for example, when they have compared humans that for two weeks completely change their diet, become vegetarians or remain as non-vegetarians, but completely change their diet. These are really well-controlled studies. They usually happen in clinics where they can really change someone's diets without you messing up with the change. Those changes can happen really rapidly within days. Now, mm -hmm. if you go back to your original diet, the microbiome will revert back to what it was. Mm. Okay, so it's better when you're younger to have a diverse way of eating so it makes it more permanent in a way. Completely. Uh, yeah, uh, got exactly. it. So the, 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 the idea, and we've seen it in studies, for example, we run several studies where we study uh, babies as they grow in Canada, but we also run studies as they grow in, in rural populations from different parts of the world. And, and we see that those differences in microbiome start really, really early. So even children, you can have a children that is breastfed exclusively in one part of the world and one child exclusively here in Canada and their microbiomes look different uh, because of the environment that they are and because of the diet that parents are eating as well. So where you are also has uh, a lot of impact on, on your microbiome, but a healthy balanced diet from early on is the best way to try and foster what we think a healthy microbiome is. Wow. And is there a way to know if our kids are missing some microbes? Like, what are some signs? Um, not really, no. So one of the reasons for that is everyone has their own signature for microbes. There's not like a right or wrong mix of microbes to have. Um, and there's been a lot of studies that have looked at it because my microbes look different than your microbes. And two healthy people's microbes may look slightly different. Now, there's certain um, features or signatures of, of microbes that have now been linked to, for example, the risk of developing a disease when a child grows. But mm -hmm. it would not be possible, for example, right now to do a test and determine if one child's microbiome is healthy, or more importantly, even if this child's microbiome is at risk of, of developing diseases. The main reason for that is that this is actually quite new science. We've been looking at microbiomes in humans in the context of health and disease for only a couple of decades, so it will take longer for science to start giving us those answers. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. 
So let's talk about probiotics, because this is a word that kept coming up in your book. Mm -hmm. And these last few years, I've been hearing a lot about it. Like, oh, you have gut problems. So maybe you should start taking probiotic. But I mean, there's all sorts of some kids, adults, uh, 5 billion, 10 billion, 50 billion. Like, how do you know? And recently, my son, I spoke with a nutritionist, and she recommended probiotic because I mean, he was often constipated for days. So she suggested that after reading your book, it made me think maybe he should start taking some. And he's been taking some, it has made such a difference. So should everyone just be taking a supplements of probiotics, like even kids? No, I don't think no. everyone should. No. So uh, probiotics definitely have a, a place where they're, they can be really helpful. And I think in, in your case, you just, you just told us a really good example and, and that's constipation. And they do some, some probiotics have been proven to help with this. Some haven't though. And okay. where I'm trying to get is that not all probiotics are made equal. So probiotics are, are not a drug. And because they're not a drug, they're actually a food product. Um, if, if you looked at regulation, they're managed by, you know, Food Canada, uh, not by a drug agency. And because of that, they're not regulated. And mm. because they're not regulated, they don't have to go through very strict testing. So they have to just like they're a food, you have to show that they're safe, but you don't have to show that they can cure anything because they're, mm. they're not a drug. And because of that, the market is full of products that work, but also full of products that don't. Mm. Uh, so it's tricky for a person like me and you um, that are not nutritionists or not experts in, in health to know, okay, which probiotic do I take, especially if we go to the pharmacy and see that there's so so many different brands it's it's really confusing so what you did was exactly spot on what I would recommend people to do and that would be to go and seek professional uh, opinions because they do know they do know the tests and the studies that have been done to recommend one product versus the other now in terms of the general population no there's actually been quite a bit of studies looking at if probiotics are beneficial just to, you know, to the common healthy uh, person. And the answer is no, they're not really going to have an improved effect if you don't already have something going on, like Mm. constipation is one of them, but there's other conditions, not a lot of them, but there's a few conditions that can be treated with probiotics. Oh, wow. I I thought it was good for everyone. That's good to know. But Um, at the same time, um, there's other recommendations that are dietary recommendations that can be almost linked to what a probiotic would do. I just gave you one and that one is fiber. So Mm -hmm. what fiber does, fiber sustains the life of certain microbes in your gut. Fiber is also known as a prebiotic because that's that's what it's doing. It's almost fertilizing the, the growth of, of certain microbes. The other recommendations that dietitians are now giving us is the use of fermented foods. And fermented foods are like natural probiotics in a way, because they do have microorganisms living in them, whether it is sauerkraut or kombucha or pickled vegetables. Many of these foods that, by the way, we humans used to eat a lot of, and, and now we, we don't, they are part of the recommendations of, of um, health healthy food guide. Mm-hmm. Especially for maybe a parent that is giving their child white bread, just that small change would help their microbes to changing it to like multigrain, whole grain, uh, even the cereals uh, that would help. 
correct? It would help. Yeah. Um, the bigger the change, the better this would be. So mm -hmm. I would say if you only use refined grains, like the white bread, but you also only use white flours in general and white rice and, and white grains or refined grains, then I, I would argue that the change has to be more than just changing the white bread. You would probably have to make a little bit of an extra effort to change some of the, the grains that you're using and, and use more of the, the whole grain varieties for them. Okay, so I know a lot of parents that when they think of the word bacteria, germs, they always think, oh my God, it's bad. It creates illnesses, disease. Some even are OCD about the cleanliness and um, kids putting things in their mouth. I mean, lots of kids eat food that fall on the floor in their house or maybe at the park and then they eat it. <laughs> and we're like, ah, are they going to get sick? I mean, simplify. Is this okay? Is this good bacteria for them? And this may be a hard message for the germaphobe out there is that there's bacteria absolutely everywhere. We actually live in, in a world that is more microbial than, than anything else. So bacteria or microbes are completely unavoidable. It doesn't matter what we do, whether we wash our hands, we're always going to be covered in bacteria. There's no way of really disinfecting ourselves. This idea that we are going to get disease from uh, not constantly trying to clean ourselves, um, it's also wrong, although it's understandable why people get this idea, because we have been taught that bacteria and viruses are the agents that cause disease. However, it's the very minority of them that even have the capacity to do those. Mm. The, the, the vast majority of the microbes that we encounter, including the ones that live in us, are not only completely harmless, but some of them um, are beneficial, are what you would call good bacteria. So, one has to learn, okay, how do I reduce my chances or my kids' chances of encountering a disease-causing microbe or a germ versus just a microbe? Now, diseases or infectious diseases usually get transmitted by someone else, either a human or an animal. Um, it's very rare that you're just going to go, let's say you, you went on a hike um, and you saw your child rolling around the trail and getting all dirty and that they're going to catch a disease from that environment. <laughs> and the main reason for that is because there's a very low concentration, let's put it that way, or low chance of there had been uh, either a human or an animal that had a disease that can be transmitted to your child right then and there. Mm. Now, that risk changes dramatically at daycare. It mm -hmm. also changes dramatically if you decide to go to a hospital for a visit or if your child is not rolling around in a trail in the forest, but he is doing so at the metro station. Mm. Why? Because there's a lot more people there. So there's a lot more chances for diseases to spread. And we've known for a long time, as long as, as we discovered that, that diseases or many of them were caused by, by microbes, that diseases spread more rapidly where there's more people in, in big cities, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that recommendation to when to allow your child to get dirty or not really has to follow this idea of what is the risk of there being other people that have diseases. So, of course, if you think about it, OK, sh should I let my child um, play with a child that is sick? Well, in a way, of course, yes, because it's impossible to avoid, um, you know, the, the common cold. But you shouldn't allow your child to play with someone that has chickenpox or something mm -hmm. that is pretty serious, right? So mm. 
the same goes to, you know, should I should I allow my child to go play in a sandbox that looks really dirty? I don't think so, because there's animals that may use that as a, you know, as a place to, mm-hmm. to pass tool. But I should let allow my child to roam free in my backyard, because I know that that's a pretty safe spot. I know who's been there, who hasn't been there. And I should allow them to definitely go out more into forested areas and areas that have a, a less chance of disease to spread. Mm. Do you see where I'm going with? Yeah, it makes me think of now when you're going to the grocery store, there's always that those disposable disinfectants at the entrance and every time you're leaving. And I think the handles of the grocery carts are one area where there's lots of bacteria. And I think people are just starting to clean before they touch a cart. Well, Um, yes, but you're you're actually making a good point because it would also be easy to get uh, into this idea that, oh, just because there's a place where there's a lot of people, I should be really careful. Mm-hmm. Um, hygiene has been studied for a long time. So we know uh, that for common diseases like, like the common cold, these are almost unavoidable, right? For other diseases that we may be more serious about, diseases that we really don't want to spread around, I would agree with you. If we knew that we were under an outbreak of a particularly dangerous disease, those measurements of cleaning ourselves at all time would be valid if we live in a city. With that said, the odds of us picking up a dangerous disease from a grocery store cart is really basically zero. It's, mm. it's quite rare. And the other thing that hygiene studies have provided us is when to clean ourselves. And this is very important because we uh, we know that by cleaning ourselves at those times, we really limit the spread of disease. And hygiene, by the way, it's exactly that. Hygiene is the measures that we can use in order to limit the spread of disease. It has nothing to do with how clean we look. It has to do with disease spreading. So we know, and we have heard this for decades, that we should clean our hands before eating, after using the washroom. If we have been with someone that is sick, if we are sick ourselves and are going to be with someone, for example, if we've been in contact with something that is decomposing or potentially um decomposing or in contact with animal waste or human waste. So those are moments where we really need to make sure that we're being clean. But in between, unless we encounter someone that is sick, we do not need to be constantly cleaning ourselves. This is what in the book we call a hyperhygienic practice. In other words, this is a practice that is not going to prevent us getting sick more or less. This is just us cleaning ourselves for the sake of being clean. Mm. Uh, So constantly disinfecting ourselves with these gels uh, in a regular, you know, normal situation um, is not going to change that risk one way or another. So let's say I grew up where my dad would always say every time we came back from school, wash your hands, wash your hands. That would be an example of yes or not really. Well, it would make sense because most kids, when they come back from school, usually have a snack. Ah, got it. Okay. it, it would make sense in that scenario or that way, you know, you clean your hands a few minutes before you're going to have dinner, or even an hour before you're going to have dinner. That actually makes sense. And, and it is in line with what has been recommended in terms of hygienic practices for um, the, the longest time. 
but what we should foster is to be hygienic during these times and, and not in between. It doesn't, it's, it's not going to help us one way or another. In the book, you talked a lot about, especially young kids, uh, if they're too clean or over-sanitized, then their immune system will not mature and they might be prone to catching serious diseases later on. Can you talk more about that link? Yes, for sure. Those um, discoveries came from studies that have compared children that grow up in farms versus children that grow up in cities. And one of the main differences is how clean city children are in comparison to farm children. Uh, I have a really good friend who is a farmer, and I can tell from the pictures that she posts on social media, her children look considerably dirtier than mine just because they're <laughs> playing outside more, right? That's mm -hmm. just the reality of, of farming. What these studies have shown is not only that their microbes look very different, but that just by being born and raised in a farm, you have a reduced chance of developing asthma and allergies, which is a disease or a, or a set of diseases that has been increasing at alarming rates in the past generation. So the past 25 years have seen like a skyrocketing of cases of allergies and asthma. And now the microbiome is be, being studied as, as one of these, these changes that are, that are driving the increased risk in, in diseases. So because of these um, important studies, we understand that not being too clean in, during childhood is actually a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to promote disease. No, we need to, we need to find a balance in both. Um, having a lot of infections during childhood is also associated with us especially mm. respiratory infections. So we really need to try and promote health in general. Um, this idea that The, the more courses of, of diseases that children get is beneficial for them is actually also wrong because diseases can be pretty taxing on the body of a child. So it does make sense that we need to prevent diseases. Luckily, now with vaccination, we, we can prevent some of the most taxing diseases in, in a child's body. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, to try and promote this exposure to microbes that are not going to cause disease. And, and, and I think outdoor living and outdoor recreation can be a very good idea for that. Mm understand. Do you think that's one of the big reasons why we've seen a, this drastic increase in kids' diseases strong yeah, enough? Yeah, it was before. Yeah, there's actually mounting evidence that that's the case and not just for asthma and allergies, but for also epidemic diseases of, of nowadays, including obesity, including autism, including HDHD. There's now pretty strong evidence showing that there are Um, linkages between changes in the microbiome early on and then the risk of some of these diseases. But the issue is that we're really in early days. So even mm -hmm. though we've identified this link, um, we're still far away from really understanding how th things work and then how to use this knowledge to, to try and prevent some of these diseases. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you mentioned something, and that's actually a question I wanted to ask you, because I always thought that when you're visiting parents, mothers with young kids, they're always sick. And I've had so many play dates have been canceled last minute because oh, my kid is sick and all that. But I always thought that if it's a cold, something like that, it's okay. It will make my child's immune systems are stronger, but you're saying that's not correct, right? No, that is not correct based on what we know and research. Now, oh. 
with that said, the common cold is completely unavoidable. So there's no way you can just bring up a child that never has the cold. So the cold is going to happen almost whether you want it or not, just because it's a very, very common disease. Mm -hmm. And the same, you know, at the same time, you don't want your child to keep getting cold all the time because that's going to be at the detriment of his or her health. Yeah. There's a few things in the book that I thought if I would have another child, I would definitely think about these things. One being, I know we talk about probiotic, but in the book, it mentioned that if you've taken antibiotics during your pregnancy, it would be beneficial to take some probiotic as well to make sure yes. that your microbiota is uh, strong for the baby because the mother transfers her microbes to the baby. Is that right? That is true. And the recommendation for taking probiotics with antibiotics uh, is not just during pregnancy, it's in general. And and, and most doctors now are, are getting really good at prescribing both. Um, one of the things that can happen when you take an antibiotic is that your gut is upset after. Um, it takes a while for your digestion to, you know, kick back to what it was before. You can often develop diarrhea. In fact, diarrhea is the most common side effect of antibiotic use. And probiotics are actually quite good, not 100%, but they're quite good at preventing some of that across the lifespan. So that, that would apply for, for children and for adults. And, and certainly one of the things that happens when you're pregnant is that it is harder to fight off Uh, diseases. And mm -hmm. because of that, we're when we're pregnant, we're a bit more at risk of having to take an antibiotic. And probiotics are a good recommendation to try and, and prevent some of the side effects of antibiotics and also to try and, and recover our, our microbiome um, a bit faster, especially if we're close to delivery. Mm -hmm. So how much of the newborn actually inherit the mother's microbes? We, so first of all, most of the, if the birth happens vaginally, a lot of the microbes from the moms, not just vaginal, but actually fecal uh, material gets transferred to the baby. So there is some inheritance that happens. With that said, because the baby is its own being, it will pick up microbes from other sources too. But for the first few weeks, and some studies actually say months, the microbiome of babies that are born via C-section differed from the microbes that are of the babies that are born vaginally. And this is because even though they're both healthy births, from the microbial point of view, they're, they're quite different. When a baby is born vaginally, uh, he or she will go through the vaginal canal. And this is an area that is first very next to our anus. And also the, the vagina itself has a very high load of microbes. So one type of birth is a lot more microbe rich than the other one. The C-section is a more sterile, not completely, of course, but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a cleaner birth from that perspective. The increase of C-section has been on the rise. And what can those women do to kind of put those microbes on the baby? Is that is there a way for that? Or? Yeah, well, that the, the actual recommendation comes from trying as much as possible to exclusively breastfeed your baby. And this is because breastfeeding or exclusive breastfeeding has a very beneficial effect on the microbiome as well as, of course, on, on the baby. Uh, there is, however, another method that is being explored, and we mentioned it in the book, but it cannot be really fully recommended 
recommended because it hasn't been properly tested the way it should. Um, mm. And this is known as vaginal seeding. So uh, we, as we just said, the babies that are born vaginally, they get impregnated with, with microbes that come from the vaginal canal as well as, as uh, fecal secretions. And then C-sections babies miss out on on these. So there's now this new method that is being studied at the moment where a baby that is born via C-section, and this normally only would work for um, planned or scheduled C-sections. A gauze that is clean and sterile, it gets impregnated with mom's vaginal secretions. And then when the baby is born and deemed healthy, she is then swabbed with this with this gauze in a way to transfer some of the microbes that this baby would have been exposed to had she been born vaginally. Now, there's been some results published from these studies showing that, yeah, there's actually some recovery in the microbiome of these babies. But what we don't know yet is whether this is going to change anything in the babies besides their microbes. Is this going to actually have an effect on their immune system? We don't know. And also uh, this type of approach needs to be or method needs to really be tested with a lot of people also to make sure that it's safe. Mm -hmm. I do know that there's people trying it on on their own, right? But my recommendation would be to listen to to the results of those studies. Mm. You you mentioned breast milk, and we all know that that's the best way to to feed a newborn. But a lot of moms have difficulty with breastfeeding for all sorts of reasons. Of course. Um, in the book, you said that one single feeding provides a hundred thousand bacteria to the baby. How can babies get these bacterias from a formula? Um, so there's now formulas that are. Uh, supplemented with probiotics, often babies that are exclusively fed with formula can also be prescribed probiotics. So that this is a way, it's not exactly the same. And studies show that it is for sure an improvement or it it looks closer to um, breastfed baby can be, but you're absolutely right. Even if you want to, you cannot sometimes feed your baby breast milk. There's now, though, better donor banks in Canada. That is also a possibility. I know that in Western Canada, in certain areas, you can even buy it at the drugstore now for moms that are having a hard time producing milk or producing enough milk. So that's another option um, for for moms out there instead instead of um, spending their their money buying formula to spend it in donor milk. Mm. We know that in breast milk, there's good bacteria. What exactly um, do we have in breast milk? So what? breast milk is a very complex um, liquid. It really has taken millions of years of evolutions to make breast milk what it is today, not just for humans, but for other mammals too. Not only is that complete sort of a liquid full of, of nutrition of what your baby will need. It also comes with a lot of immune factors. So immune molecules, it comes with antibodies and other even natural antimicrobials that are going to prevent bad bugs from infecting your child or from causing disease in your child. So it's a it's an amazing concoction of nutrition and protection. And then on top of that, we have come to realize that there's microbes. There's actually a, a lot of microbes in, in breast milk. So every time that a child breastfeeds, particularly from the breast, going to be taking gulps of microbes. And some of them are, are the right type to actually colonize and stay in the gut. And then something that's even more 
more fascinating, at least it is to me, is that breast milk has a specific type of, of sugar or carbohydrate that humans cannot digest. That means that you, you're feeding your, your baby this, this sugar that cannot be digested by his or her stomach. It can only be digested by the microbes in mm. your baby's stomach or, or intestine. And what this means is that breast milk is also a prebiotic. It's both. It's a, it's a prebiotic and it's a probiotic. A probiotic because it has those bugs that are known to be beneficial for a child, but it also has food to make these bugs thrive. And that's what, what a prebiotic is. So uh, breast milk is, is a pretty fantastic concoction of beneficial factors for a child. And the formulas, I know they're not exactly like breast milk, but are they still pretty good nowadays in what we're finding? So in terms of nutrition? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. a nutritionally complete food. In terms of all the added benefits of breast milk, unfortunately, not so much. That's not to say that formulas haven't changed. They actually have. They, they have improved. Uh, but some of the immune factors really are not there. It would be uh, really hard to put them there synthetically, and it would also be prohibitively expensive to do so. Some of the formulas now have probiotic species, which is very good. Some of them are starting to have some of these sugars that I was telling you about, the prebiotic sugars, but not all of them. And that makes for a very expensive formula as well, because these are very expensive to produce. So formula has come a long way. Unfortunately, it would have to come a long way more in order to be comparable to, to breast mm -hmm. So I read that um, you changed the way you parented your first and second child regarding cleanliness. I was curious to know, what did you do differently with your second one? Well, it had to do with the, the main things that I can remember that changed had to do with the fact that I discovered that pediatric societies no longer recommend parents to sterilize bottles and other feeding utensils that, that we normally use. I thought with my first that that's actually what you had to do. It turns out that that's not the case. Uh, both in the United States as well as Europe and, and in Canada, the recommendation is that you clean them properly. You, you should sterilize them the, the first time that, that you use them. But after that, you clean them with the right tool for it, the, the right brush for, for bottles and, and for the bottle nipples as well. Uh, but you can use just warm water and, and dish soap the same way you would wash your own dishes. You do have to be careful to get really deep into those um, nooks and, and crannies, right? so that milk deposits or food deposits do not get there. But you don't really need to, to sterilize them. At the same time, at around that time, there was a, a really interesting study that came out of um, Sweden. I can't remember the year it was published. It's in the book. But it was published in the, in the journal Pediatrics, which is a well-respected journal, whereas uh, this study was looking at the different cleanliness factors associated or not with allergies. And, and they found that in those households where dishes were being washed by hand versus dishwashing, there was a reduced risk of allergies. And it was a, a good study. I did take the time to read it. Oh, and wow. I, I thought, and I thought this is really interesting. I don't know if this is going to convince me to start, <laughs> to start washing dishes by hand. I, I doubt that. But it really speaks to this nature of per, perhaps we're We're just cleaning ourselves too much. So one of the things that I definitely did was that I stopped sterilizing uh, bottles for, for my second child. 
Let me just ask you a question here because I've had parents that are worried, oh, we're going to Mexico or Cuba or wherever, those countries where you can't really uh, drink from tap water. And I've been questioned, how should I sterilize my bottle? Should I even travel there? Because I'm worried about giving them clean feeding bottles. So what would you say to that? Yeah, that um, that's a really good point, because what I just said really should be only taken into account in the context of living in a city that has potable water as the norm, as every mm-hmm. every single drop of water that comes out of any tap would be potable. That's not mm-hmm. the case in many parts of the world, as you stated. And in that case, yes, indeed, you would have to find another way, whether it is boiling them. I know that there are systems that use uh, microwave and steam in order to sterilize them. You can still use that water for sterilization, but you have to sterilize the water first. And in, in, in any mm-hmm. case, you have to really get it to roll boil um, for a while in in order for that to be used. So whether you travel or not, that's up to you to decide. Um, It just becomes a bit more troublesome. But of course, esterization is possible in those scenarios as well. Okay. So what else did you do differently? Uh, The one thing that I remember was clearly remember was that, but I still relaxed a a bit more. I think in most cases, most parents that we just relax a bit more with our second or third or fourth child compared to our first. I really yes. relaxed more when it come when it came to, you know, her grabbing something from the floor of my house and, and putting it into her mouth. As long as it wasn't something hazardous or, you know, choking danger, I became a bit more relaxed into how clean I they needed to be. Mm-hmm. I have to mention vaccination from the book. I understood that you were pro vaccination. I have to mention this because I have a specific question because my sister-in-law has never vaccinated her kids. She had has three kids. Is it potentially dangerous to be around kids that aren't vaccinated? Yeah, in fact, um, unfortunately, it is potentially dangerous. The thing with the way vaccines work is that Unfortunately, it's not really black or white. We cannot say in 100% that every child that is going to be vaccinated is going to be completely immunized because not everyone's immune system works that way. Most people, Mm -hmm. yes, but no one knows this. This is something that, you know, we vaccinate our children and we assume that they're 100% protected, but no one goes around and tests for their immune system to see if if they are indeed. Mm -hmm. Because of that, we really rely on the fact that the majority of the children that our children encounter need to be vaccinated so that really the risk of getting one of these dangerous diseases can be as low as as we need it to be, you know, for, for us to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so for, for that reason alone, um, it, it can be dangerous to um, hang around children that aren't vaccinated. And of course, there's also, again, going back to this, nothing is black and white in biology. Um, you can, even without getting infected, you can become a temporary carrier of a disease that could affect someone else. And this someone else can be an important proportion of children that for health reasons cannot be vaccinated. And and you'd be surprised, it's actually a a good proportion of them, whether their immune system is not mature enough, whether they had um, an underlying disease and vaccination 
is not recommended at the same stages as with healthy children. So inadvertently, someone by being in contact with someone that's unvaccinated, let's say develops whooping cough, which has been increasing lately, that person could temporarily for a number of hours or even days become a carrier that can transmit a bacteria or a virus to someone that for health reasons cannot be vaccinated. So the way we understand now vaccinations and vaccinations have been studied for a long time now is that for them to work, you kind of have to sign into this social contract, if you may, where you agree to vaccinate your children, not only because of your children, but because of someone else's children too. The fact of the matter is that yes, the majority of children will develop complete immunity against the things that you're vaccinated, but that is not 100% absolute because, you know, bi biology is not is not black and white as I said. So, yeah, vaccination is a is a contentious issue for sure, one that we wanted to touch up and, and present what we think are, are the facts. I, I really try to come out from the least judgmental position because although I don't relate with the reasons um, that anti-vaxxers for when they decide not to vaccinate mm -hmm. children, mm -hmm. I wholeheartedly agree that they're doing it because they are, they agree that they're protecting their children. This is, this mm -hmm. is what's driving them. And this is the same reason that drove me to vaccinate my children. Mm -hmm. um, so even though there are risks to vaccination too, however small they may be, every every parent worries about that. So mm -hmm. uh, we try to be conscious about the fact that everyone has opinions and, and a, a job as a scientist, particularly scientists that are studying child development and, and child immune development. We try to bring this message as non-judgmental as possible and try to find middle of the road solutions, gray areas to try and, and convince um, those parents that decide not to vaccinate to maybe at least do so for a number of vaccines or, or to try and see the other end of or the other side of, of the coin. Mm, perfect. A few quick questions so you can answer them as, as briefly as possible. So it's called the freshly squeezed question. Is it okay to have many people hold your newborn or should we insist that they wash their hands beforehand? We should insist that they wash their hands um, and for good measure. This is something that um, a pediatrician will tell you as well. Babies are born with an immune system that is very much developing. And especially if you get them exposed to a lot of people, I mean, how common, especially this time of the year, how common is a cold, right? Mm -hmm. I think this time of the year, especially if you get them in contact with other children that are almost always carrying something. So it is good measure to ask people to wash their hands before. Okay. Um, at least until those first sets of, of uh, vaccinations. That's not to say that you shouldn't expose your, your child to family members, right? That's part of what makes us human, yeah. that, that we bring up a child around a family. But yeah, it is good measure to wash your hands before. Okay. Um, some parents clean the their baby soothers in their mouth. Is that good or bad? Um, I would say it is neither. Let's put it that way. So going back to the studies that have done this, they also found that those households, so the same Swedish study, right? Those mm -hmm. houses that parents use that practice to clean soothers with their mouth, mm -hmm. that led to a lower risk of allergy too. So you can draw from that study that maybe you should do that. With that said, there is a sort of caution on the side of that. And it's the fact that cavities can be transmitted as well, right? So oh. if you have really good oral health, if you're not the 
person that is prone to get oral diseases that are always caused by bacteria, then yeah, you can you can definitely risk it. I think that that study would support that. At the same time, um, oral health is something that not necessarily everyone knows exactly about how, how they're doing. You would have to you would have to make that decision on your own. If you think that your oral health is really good, then yeah, by all means. But if you're not sure, then might as well just clean the pacifier with good old soap and water. Again, this is something that you don't need to sterilize. You could just clean it a bit. Got it. Sometimes we we have like a family pet and we say, don't lick the face or keep the dog away. Is a dog that licks a kid's face good bacteria? Uh, depends on the dog. But in general, and there's actually many more studies showing that having a dog at home, in particular, a dog that leaves the house for walks will very significantly reduce the risk of allergies and asthma. Hmm. Uh, I don't know about you if you have dogs, but it is almost impossible to prevent a dog from licking a child because they're usually <laughs> from the same height. So uh, on one end, I wouldn't say that you should go promote and make your dog kiss your child all the time. But if it happens, I think it's absolutely normal. And there's a protective factor there with having dogs around the house, even, even with the licks that are known to happen. At the same time, you have to also understand that dogs also need a, a clean bill of health. So dogs need to go to the vet. Um, every six months or every year and they need to be vaccinated you need to make sure they are healthy because some of those diseases could get transmitted too so if you have a healthy dog yeah by all means mm -hmm. as a parent we often have hand sanitizers in our handbag is that necessary Absolutely not. Not unless you're sick with a contagious disease or if for whatever reason you are going to a hospital or if you're camping and you don't have a, you know, running water, running potable water. But if that's not the case, there really isn't a, a good reason. Um, it's been shown in studies that hand sanitizers are actually not better than good old soap and water in order to sanitize your hands or to wash your hands. So you don't really need them. And the fact of the matter is that if you have them, it's like having a, a bottle of lotion in your purse. You might just use it a lot more than is necessary just because mm -hmm. it's there. So no, you don't need to. Uh, you should really just follow the guidelines that we spoke about before in terms of when to wash their hands and to just use plain good old soap and water. Mm -hmm. And one last question. What research are you currently working on that involves kids or babies? Well, all of my research program involves the early life, right, the infant stages of the microbiome and the immune system. Um, one of the ones that particularly takes a big amount of, of my effort and the effort of my team is a clinical study where we are monitoring and studying babies and the microbiomes of babies that are born prematurely. Um, as early as 24 weeks gestation up to 36 and, and a half weeks gestation. And um, we follow them every week for two months and then uh, every month for a couple of months. And then we follow them up a year and then at three years. Try to really study how the microbiome of premature babies develop because it's quite different, the microbiome of, of babies that are born at term. And then try to see if any of these changes in the microbiome is associated with some of the health challenges that these babies experience later on. So this is um, one of the bigger studies that we have. Oh, wow. This is a question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So uh, we all know that being a mother is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found that kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? 
Yeah, I would say talking to other mothers. If you're lucky enough to have your own mother or other older family members that have gone through it, as well as other members of your town or, or where you are that can share their experiences, a motherhood can be quite the experience, especially the first time around, um, emotionally especially, not, not only practically. And it's, it's important to surround yourself with others that have gone through the same for their knowledge, but most importantly, for, for their support. So I would say that's really, really important. So where can people find you if they want more information about uh, you and your research? Yes, What's of course. That? Well, we do have, um, in addition to the book, a website, and it's called Let Them Eat Dirt. Dot com. Um, there's information on how to contact us. Um, I am the principal investigator of the Arietta Lab. So at ariettalab.com, that's another place where you can find my information as well as information of the research that we do here. Um, I also wanted to mention for those of you that are close to the Ottawa area, starting in December, the Canadian Museum of Nature is starting this wonderful exhibit of the human microbiome. And it's a it's it's really a, a great opportunity for anyone to go and learn a little bit more about this. There's going to be talks by experts. I think I'm going there in in, in March, uh, but there's going to be experts throughout one or one or two every month giving giving public talks as well as this this wonderful exhibit that that um, was in the U.S. in the American Museum of Nature in, in New York for the longest time and and the first time that is traveling is to Ottawa. Um, so anyone that is in that area that may be interested, I'm, I'm sure would find that very, very neat. I've been to the one in New York and it is really wonderful. And that's not only because I love microbes. Most people like it too. <laughs> well, thank you, Mary Claire. No, um, no, no worries. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com slash episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>